The book of Joshua, it picks up right after the death of Moses and the death of the generation of Israelites that were led out of captivity from Egypt. Now, the generation that Moses had led out of Egypt, they were not permitted to enter the promised land. And again, this is one of these stories we had to skip over, so I'm going to give you the, the, the brief cliff version of it. They, after two years of being in the wilderness with God, they've, you know, they've, they've been in Mount Sinai getting the law of God. They've set up the tabernacle. They've come to the Jordan River, and they are looking across the Jordan River at the promised land. They decide, instead of just going into the promised land, they're going to send some spies to see how everything goes. So they send 12 spies, one from each tribe. They go into the promised land, and they're gone for 40 days. They come back after 40 days and they, they give a report about what they saw in the promised land. And two groups of spies give two very different reports. There's 10 spies who their focus is on the inhabitants of the promised land. There, there's giants in the land. There's powerful armies in the land. There's fortified cities in the land. There's, there's a lot of, of trouble and turmoil and battles in the land, and we can't take the land, so we need to not even try. Matter of fact, they said, we should just go back to Egypt and be slaves instead of trying to conquer this land, because if we do that, we're just going to die in the wilderness. Then there's two slaves, Joshua and Caleb. And their report is, yeah, there's... There's giants in the land. Yeah, there's, there's big armies in the land. Yeah, there's fortified cities in the land. But none of that matters because we have God. And if we have God, it doesn't matter how big their army is. It doesn't matter how big their city is. It doesn't matter how big they are. We've got God. He's going to win the battle for us. Let's go in. Wonderful faith. But Israel doesn't listen to them. They listen to the 10 spies. And so God tells them, since you don't have the faith to trust me, to do what I promised to do, even though I've shown you these last two years in the wilderness that I'm going to keep my word and protect you and fight for you and defend you, but since you don't believe me, you don't get to go in. Everybody 30 years old and up or 20 years old and up is going to die wandering in the wilderness. And he says, I'm going to wait until all of, your all of you are dead and your bones are scattered through the wilderness. Then your kids will go in and they'll claim the land. So the generation that Moses led out of Egypt, they're not allowed to go on the promised land. Moses isn't allowed to go on the promised land. Not because of that, but later on, he's once again, Israel is complaining. Man, they're good at complaining. So they're complaining, they're thirsty. So God tells Moses, speak to the rock and the rock will bring forth water. But Moses doesn't speak to the rock. He smites the rock. And a lot of people say, well, he disobeyed God and he hit the rock. And that's why he didn't get to go in. No, no, no. When he hit the rock, he said, do I have to do everything for you? Moses said, look, look what I can. I'm giving you the water. So Moses put himself in the position of God. So God says, well, Moses, you blew it too. Since you don't trust me enough to do it, you don't get to go in either. So Joshua picks up everybody who came out of Egypt. Everybody who saw the Red Sea crossing, 
and saw the Egyptians get murdered, everyone who saw the power of God on Mount Sinai, everyone who's been fed for 40 years, because they wander for 40 years, everyone who has seen God provide food and water and shelter for 40 years. And look, even these, the, the Bible says that when the kids would grow, their shoes and their pants and their clothes would grow with them. Man, that would be great. I've been trying to invent something like that because Connor, man, we'll buy him a pair of pants today and they'll be the perfect length. In three days, they're high waters. And in like a week, they're shorts. So I'm like, I, I, would, I would pay extra for pants that grow with you. And so, but their, their kids were provided for, their kids, their clothes grew with them, their shoes grew with them, nothing wore out. But after 40 years, the older generation who was constantly doubting God, who was constantly saying, let's just go back to Egypt. They're gone. Moses is gone. And Israel is on the, the precipice of a brand new season of their life. Now, the land they're going to take is still filled with, with enemies. It's still got fortified cities. It still has huge armies. It still has giants on the land. There's still trials and battles there. But Joshua is ready to lead the nation to see God's promise be fulfilled. Now, the nation, they're about to enter a brand new stage of their history. They are no longer going to be a nation of pilgrims. They're going to be a warrior nation. They're going to go into the promised land and they're going to fight and they're going to conquer and they're going to claim everything God had promised to Abraham. But... While their situation is changing, while the season of their life is changing, their walk with God doesn't change. God's presence with them doesn't change. Whatever they are facing, they still have God. And that's the key to their victory. Your life... Throughout your life, you're going to go through multiple seasons of life. You have a season of being a child, season of being a teenager, season of being a student, season of being a newlywed, season of being new parents, season of raising teenagers, which is the hardest season ever. Then you've got... <laughs> Then you've got the season of your, your kids growing up and leaving the house and going to college and starting their own families, getting married, and now you've got the season of being a grandparent, which I hear is the greatest season ever because you get to take these kids and spoil them rotten and then send them home to the, the brats you raised and teach them a lesson. And so, you know, you get to do everything. To, you know, I'm going to teach you what you were like when you were a kid. Then you've got, you know, the season of empty nesters, the season of retirement. And all these seasons, your life is going to change. But God never does. No matter what you're facing today, God's the same today as he was 20 years ago when you were facing something then. If you rely on him, like you do during the tough times, if you rely on God in every season of your life, You'll be victorious 
like Joshua was and Israel was in the nation of Israel. So that's how Joshua opens up. Israel, they're beginning a new season of their life, but they still have God with them in this season. Look at Joshua. Turn to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Joshua 1 says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, now and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. And every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have, I, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. For from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. So Joshua, it's not only the nation of Israel taking on this new season of life, Joshua is too. And it's important to understand who Joshua is. Not only was he one of the only two spies to have faith in God, but he was also Moses' assistant, his kind of, his servant, his, his like secretary. Everything, he was there with Moses during all these important things. You know, when Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the, the, the plans for the tabernacle from God, you know who else was on the mountain? Joshua. He wasn't with Moses in the presence of God, but he was right next to it. He was the only one besides Moses even allowed to come onto the mountain. Everyone else, God said, look, you touch the mountain, you die, but Joshua, you come on up. You can't come in my presence, but you can, you can get close Closer than anyone else. So he, he was allowed to the presence of God. And he takes on this leadership of the nation of Israel right after Moses' death. But what's important is right after Moses dies, God comes to Joshua. Says, Joshua, I know this is a scary time for you. Your, your servant, your leader's gone. Your mentor's gone. The guy you relied on for you know, these 40 years, he's dead and he's gone. And you're facing a pretty big challenge. You've got to take this, this nation into the, the promised land and fight these people and win these battles and claim this land. But I want you to know, Joshua, it's all going to be okay because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to provide for you. Just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. Now, he doesn't promise Joshua that he'll be successful because Joshua is such a great leader. Because Joshua is so awesome. He promises him that he'll be successful because God is so awesome. And he will be with Joshua just like he was with Moses. That's why Joshua is so confident as he enters the promised land. And he's, he's not confident in his ability, but he's, he's confident in the God who is with him. Confidence doesn't come from looking at what's inside of you. Confidence for the child of God comes from looking at who is right beside you in everything you face. Then look down at verse number six. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, 
that they may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. So get this, it's not, it's not enough, God says, it's not enough that you know that I'm with you. You have to know me through my word. So he goes, I want you to, to constantly, you know, re- be reading and memorizing and studying the word of God. Now remember at this point, the word of God consists of five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses just finished writing them. Moses finishes it and dies. And that's all they've got. Joshua lived through 90% of those books. He's been there and he, he experienced everything that's in there. But God says, I want you to rely on the word of God to trust me through my word. Now I want you to go to chapter number five. Skip over to chapter five. <clears throat> Joshua's first major challenge uh, after he takes leadership is the city of Jericho. Um, Jericho is a a very fortified city. Jericho, historians tell us, Jericho was the most fortified city of any city in the entire world at this time. The walls were so thick that you could drive two chariots side-by-side on the top of the wall. And chariots were not, you know, very, they weren't small little things. It's not like, you know, you got two smart cars going side by side. These are like two Suburbans. They're big cars. So they're big vehicles, big things riding side by side. It's like a two-lane highway. That's how thick the walls of Jericho are. And God tells Joshua, that's your first challenge. That's your first task. Take that city. Now, Joshua, they, they go over, they camp it in the plains of Jericho. And on the, 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 the night before the battle, Joshua can't sleep. And I mean, can you really blame him? He's just crossed the Jordan River. He's in the promised land, but he's got, he's a brand new leader, brand new warrior. He's not really had a lot of experience leading men in the battle. And now he's got this huge city that God says, I want you to destroy this city and take this city. And so he can't sleep. So he gets out and he starts to overlook the city. And while he's looking at the city, kind of trying to clear his head, or I don't know what, figure out what he's going to do. He meets a warrior that he doesn't know. Now, when he meets this warrior, of course, he's understandably nervous. He, you know, the Bible tells us that he was literally at the walls of Jericho. So it's not like he's looking at the city a couple miles away. He is right by the wall. He is snuck up to the wall and he's right there. And he meets this huge warrior that's got his sword drawn. Joshua's ready for war. And now he sees this huge warrior with his sword drawn. He's like, well, I don't know what's going on here. And so it's late at night. He goes to pray and he comes face to face with his warrior. Look at verse number 13 in chapter number five. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, again, when it's, when it's written in the Hebrew, the word, you know, by Jericho, he's right up at the wall. He's not looking at a distance. He's right there. He is right by the walls of this city. And when Joshua was by Jericho, that he, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? Now look, I'm going to be honest here. Joshua's a man's man. 
I mean, he's, he's in this, 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 this situation. He's about to go to war against this city. He's right by this city. He snuck up there and he's kind of right by the wall. No one's supposed to know he's there. He turns a corner and there's a warrior looking right at him with his sword drawn and Joshua picks a fight. Me, I'm going the other way. But Joshua goes right up to him and says, man, who are you with? You with us or are you with them? You, you ever heard those Chuck Norris jokes? They're really Joshua jokes. You know, Superman wears Joshua pajamas. Death had a near Joshua experience, those jokes. Joshua was a, he was a tough, courageous man. So he goes up to this man, this warrior. He doesn't know him. He's in enemy territory. He runs right up to him and says, are you for us or are you for them? And look what the guy says in verse 14. <clears throat> and he said, nay. What kind of answer is that? Are you for us or are you for them? No. That doesn't give me a lot of clarity here, man. But here's the thing. Joshua was asking the wrong question. Let's finish verse 14. And he said, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face and worshiped. So the, this guy says, look, Joshua, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, am I on your side? The question is, are you on God's side? Are you on the Lord's side or are you doing something for yourself? That's the issue. This warrior, he isn't coming as someone to fight with Israel. He is coming as someone to lead Israel into battle and to fight for them. Look how it finishes up in 14 and 15. And Joshua fell on his face of the earth and did worship and said unto him, what saith my Lord unto a servant and the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, loose thy shoe from off thy foot for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And Joshua did so. All right. Who is this warrior? How many of y'all think this is an angel of God? This is one of God's archangels. How many of y'all think it's, it's something else? How many of y'all are scared to answer because you're waiting for me to tell you? All right. He's not an angel. I can tell you that because Joshua worshipped him. In Revelation, John sees an angel. He worships this angel. And you know what that angel says? Get up. Don't worship us. Worship God. So this angel, well, this person, Joshua worships him. He doesn't say, hey, no, 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 no. Don't do that. He lets him worship him. Then he says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Remember what God told Moses when Moses saw him on the, at the burning bush? Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. This is what is known as a Christophany. It is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus in human form. He's done it before. Melchizedek, you know, we, we skipped a story, I know, but there was a story of Melchizedek where Abraham meets Melchizedek and he ties to Melchizedek and sacrifices for That was a Christophany where, you know, he was the king of Salem, had no beginning, had no end. That was Jesus in the flesh. Moses, Jesus, uh, Abraham got to meet Jesus face to face before he was born in, in Nazareth and now, or Bethlehem, and now Joshua is walking around this city and he comes face to face with Christ in the flesh. He doesn't demand Joshua make a sacrifice. He doesn't demand that Joshua really do anything. 
All he demands is Joshua surrender to him. He said, you don't got to sacrifice. All you got to do is, do, is let, do what I say. Follow me, obey me, and let me fight this battle for you. This isn't a battle that Joshua is going to fight with God's help. It's a battle that God is going to fight for Joshua. Now, in the look at verse number, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, so again, remember, he's talking to this angel. The Lord says to Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. Jericho, this powerful city, this fortified city, it is terrified because of the nation of Israel that's camped outside their gates. But not because Israel's some great and mighty army. They're scared of Israel because of the God of Israel. They've heard about how God destroyed the Egyptians. They've heard about how God fought for them in the wilderness when they would come up against much bigger armies and God would fight for them and they were victorious. They heard about how they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground just like they had the Red Sea. They know that this nation is not just a, a warrior nation. It's not just an invading army. This nation has the God of the universe behind them the whole time. And they're scared of God. God says, look, I've already beat them for you. They're already defeated. I have already given this city to you, and Israel hasn't done a thing. And then God gives him the battle plan. And it's weird. And historians have studied it, and, you know, uh, battle historians have studied it, and it's a weird, you know, thing that they have to do and God tells Joshua and Joshua doesn't tell the people but here's the plan God says I want you to walk around the city once a day for six days take the Ark of the Covenant walk around the city one time every day for six days but don't say anything be quiet and you know the people in Jericho they're yelling at him Hey, you blanket blank Jews or whatever they're saying. And, but he's like, don't, don't say anything. Just walk and do nothing. Then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around seven times. On the seventh time, I want you to shout real big and blow some trumpets and I'll do the rest. And that's what happens. They blow the trumpets. They march for seven, six days. They march seven times on the seventh day. They shout. They blow. And I've heard people try to explain this as well. When the, the army marched around the city, it kind of weakened the foundation. And so when the noise hit that wall and the noise reverberated. No! That's like trying to explain crossing the Red Sea. Well, what they really did well, on low tide. No! God performed a miracle. If you, if you actually read it in the, in the Hebrew... You know, we think of the wall of Jericho, we think it goes, you know, falls down like that. If you read it in the Hebrew, it, it gives a connotation. It was just sucked into the ground. It's like they're just, they're just behind their wall and all of a sudden the wall goes. They're like, uh-oh. But God destroyed the city for them. So put yourself in Joshua's position for a minute. You're amped up for a fight, man. You want to prove yourself? You want to show that you're able to do what God's asked you to do? And God says, here's the plan. 
And all I need you to do is walk around and yell. And I'll do everything else. I'll take care of it for you. And that's what they do. But God does put some restrictions on them. Look at chapter 6. Look at verse number 18. And ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves a curse when you take off the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So God says, look, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to win the battle. I'm going to destroy the city. I've already done it for you, but everything in that city is mine. The gold is mine. The silver is mine. Everything is mine. Why? Because God did the fighting. And whoever does the fighting gets the spoils. So God says, look, all you're going to do is yell and run in and claim what's yours. I'm going to do the fighting so everything is mine. And Israel does exactly what God says. Look at verse number 20 in chapter 16. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with great shout that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword. Now, here's one of the stories, or one of the, the kind of stories in the Bible that people have a little bit of issue with, because it looks like God just told Israel to commit genocide. Go in and destroy everything. And the Bible says they went and destroyed everything. That, that, that phrase and that, that, that kind of connotation is given all throughout the book of Joshua, where they go to a city and destroy the city and kill everybody in it, and so the city is wiped out. But they're not killing everybody in it, and we know that because several books later, that city still has inhabitants, and Israel's still dealing with them. So they, they were killing all the fighting age men and all that, those things. And so it was like, man, God, God just, he had them wipe out this people because of their race. But here's the thing. It wasn't murder and it wasn't genocide. It was judgment. See, genocide is wiping someone out because of the race. And that's not the issue here. You know how I know? Because Rahab and her family were spared. You know why they were spared? Because they trusted in God. They put their faith in God and so God spared them. Everyone else in the city could have done the same thing, but they didn't, so God judged them. Also know this because later on after Jericho and after Ai, Israel's going and they're, they're fighting some, they're destroying these cities. And then now they're kind of tricked, but this other city, this other people come to them, the Gibeonites, and they come to them and they say, we believe that your God is the one true God and we put our faith and trust in him. And the Gibeonites were spared. But God said before they entered the promised land, kill everybody in the promised land. But the Gibeonites, were, why were the Gibeonites spared? Because they put their faith in God. They trusted God as their Savior. Same thing with Rahab. So, you know, it's this, this opportunity was available to everyone, but they chose not to take it. Secondly, Israel didn't do the killing. When you read it in the original, Israel didn't kill anybody. The wall fell, the city literally crumbled, and God killed everybody in it. He didn't want that on Israel's head. He didn't want to burden them with that, that burden. So he did all the killing for them. And he does it other times. Later on, they're chasing a nation and God rains down hail, a fire from heaven to kill a nation. He, he does it for them. But that's not the point of the sermon. They do what they're told. The walls fall. They take the city. And it's a great victory. Then look at chapter 7. But the children of Israel, chapter 7, verse 1, but the children of Israel 
committed a trespass in the accursed thing for Achan, the son of Camry, not the car, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. One guy takes what he's not supposed to take. Remember, God said, don't touch anything. It's mine. Achan, he sees some gold, he sees some silver, he sees some nice clothes. He takes them. And God said, because Achan sinned, the entire nation of Israel has trespassed against me. But Joshua has no idea. Look what happens starting in chapter 2, or verse 2. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, to the east side of Bethel, and spoke unto them, saying, Go and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two, two or three thousand men go up to smite Ai, and make not all the people labor there thither, for they are but few. So there went up thither from the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down, wherever the hearts, and the, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So now, their next challenge is Ai, a little small village. They just defeated Jericho, huge fortified city. They go to the small village. They look at it and say, ah, we don't need all the people. Let's just send 3,000 people. Now, I know the sin's on Achan, but neither Joshua nor anyone else said, let's make sure God goes with us. They said, we, we can take them. We just need 3,000 men. So they go to fight, and they're chased away by 36 men are killed because they didn't trust God. They, they go to battle, and, they, they, and after this, the people are destroyed. So what happened? Had God left them? So Joshua, he falls in his face, and he asks God, God, what's going on? And God reveals to him the sin of Achan, it says, because of that sin, the entire nation has sinned against God, and that sin has to be dealt with before God will fight for them. But look how God describes the sin in verse 1 again. It says, but the children of Israel committed a trespass. That word trespass in the Hebrew, it literally means they have broken their faith. They have broken their faith in God because Achan violated God's law and he violated Israel's position of trust in God. Now, it looks like he just got greedy. But God says he broke his faith in his relationship with God. He quit depending on God to provide for him. He quit depending on God to meet his needs, to fill his life with meaning and happiness. And so he, he took matters into his own hands. I don't trust God or depend on him enough to fight for me and to provide for me. So I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to take this gold. I'm going to take this silver. I'm going to take this cloth. And I'm going to provide for my family because I don't know if God will continue to do so. He took a posture of doubt against God and the entire nation suffered because of it. Now, with those two stories in mind, we're almost done, I promise you. Let's see two postures that God wanted Israel to take and God expects us to take as we enter any season of our life. Here's the first posture God wanted us to take, a posture 
of surrender. Posture of surrender. Now, the man that Joshua meets in chapter 5, he makes it clear to Joshua, I'm not here to assist you in the battle. I'm here to fight the battle for you. I'm here to do all the work, to do all the fighting, to do all the killing, and all you have to do is surrender to me. Joshua, this new leader, this man appointed by God to lead them in the battle, he must surrender his leadership to God. So here's a question for us today. How do you see God in your life? Most of us, we look at God as someone who is there to assist us in the battles we go through. I'm going to fight this battle. I'm going to go through this trial. I'm going to take handle this burden. And yeah, God's going to be there to give me grace and mercy and stuff like that. But he's just there to kind of pet me up and keep me going as I fight these battles. His influence, he influences us, he guides us, he comforts us, he takes care of us in tough times, but that's all he is. He's just kind of a, an assistant to us. And yeah, God does all those things, but he wants, to do all the, he, he wants to do all those things, but he doesn't want to do them as our assistant. He wants to be the one leading us, the one we surrender to. God wants to be the Lord that we follow. You know, the Bible says that God came as the Lord Jesus Christ. His name's not Lord, that's his title. You can't have him as just Jesus and not have him as Lord as well. Look, people, they want the loving Jesus. They want the helpful Jesus. They want the encouraging Jesus. They want the take me to heaven when I die Jesus. And he is all those things, but they don't want the I am holy, so you be holy, Jesus. They don't want the, do these things. Here's my commandments. You must obey them, Jesus. They just want Jesus to give them what they need, and they'll do everything else themselves. He is also the Lord Jesus. He's holy. He's commanding. And you can't pick and choose which side of him you get. Now, I know some of you are thinking, uh, he's getting awful close to lordship salvation. Make Jesus Lord of your life and then he'll save you. Well, I'm not doing that and the Bible's not saying that. Here's what I'm saying. You don't have to make Jesus Lord of your life. He is. He's already Lord of your life. So this, make Jesus Lord. He is the Lord. You don't make him what he is. Well, I'm going to make him King of Kings. No, he is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. So I don't make him Lord of my life but I do, as his child, have to surrender to his lordship. I have to surrender to him and his will and his desires for my life. Joshua, he could have gone to Jericho on his own and lost. He did it at Ai, but he surrendered to God's leadership and let God do all the fighting for him. He had to submit to God's leading to surrender to him. And Achan, he broke his faith in God by not trusting him to provide anymore. He thought his way was better than God's way. And we do that all the time in our life. 
my way to handle my finances better than God's way to handle my finances. God wants me to give 10% to the church and live off the 90%. But my way is I get all the 100% and I do what I want to do with it. And so my way is better than God's way. So I'm not going to submit to him. I'm going to do it my way. When God's way says, it's all mine. You're not loaning me 10% of your income. I am giving you all of it. And I ask as an act of faith, you give a sacrifice back to me and allow me to take care of you with the rest. But my way is better. My way of dating is better than God's way because God wants me to stay pure and holy before marriage. But if I don't do, but if I don't, if I don't, you know, give in to what my boyfriend or girlfriend says, I may lose them. And so my way is better than God's way. My way of browsing the internet is better than God's way because he says to keep my eyes holy and not put any wicked thing before my eyes. But if I obeyed God's way, then I wouldn't get to see the things I want like and wouldn't get to watch the TV shows I want to see. And so my way is better than God's way. My way of dealing with hurt is better than God's way because God says I got to forgive and forget and, you know, allow, you know, not let bitterness and not hold grudges. But you know what? They hurt me so bad. They don't deserve to be forgiven. So my way is better than God's way. We're, we're aching in those situations. We're doing things our way because God's not really in charge of your life. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Well, gee, you can be Lord of my Sundays, but I'll be Lord of everything else. That's not how it works. Jesus, here's my life. Every thought, every action, every deed, Every sin, everything is yours. You do with it what you want, and I'll surrender to you and trust you. God has a better plan for your life than you could ever imagine, but it starts with surrender to his leader. Here's the second thing. Second stance we're supposed to take, courage. Throughout the book of Joshua, the primary thing that derails the obedience to God is fear. Fear always leads to rebellion. I want you to put yourself in the position of a regular Israelite. Joshua knows the plan. The Israelite soldiers don't. They're at Jericho. They're geared up for war. They've got their armor, their spears, their swords, their shields, their helmets. They're ready to fight. And they come to Joshua and say, all right, Joshua, what are we going to do? Joshua says, today, all we're going to do is walk around the city and don't say anything. No talking, just shh, quiet. We're going to walk around. Okay, maybe we're doing some recon. Whatever. Day two comes. All right, Joshua, what are we going to do? We're going to walk around the city again. Be quiet. Why did I bring my sword? Okay, maybe we're trying to, maybe we're playing mind games with these people. I don't know. Day three. All right, Joshua, let's go get them. Right, we're going to walk around again today. Six days, you show up ready to fight. And Joshua says, we're going to walk. Then you show up the seventh day, you probably didn't bring nothing. At what's the point? And Joshua doesn't say, go get your swords. He says, anybody got a trumpet? Go get your trumpets. We're going to do something different today. All right, we're going to walk around seven times and blow trumpets at them, and it's going to be great. They had to trust what God was doing. So here's what courage is. Courage is the ability to keep going even when you don't see anything happening. Courage is the ability to continue 
to follow God when you don't see anything happening to make you believe God's doing anything. That's what courage is. See, we always, always want God to tell us the why and the when of what we're going through. Look, I can go through anything God throws at me if he tells me when it's going to be over and why I'm having to go through it. If he told me that, if he's like, hey, you're, you're, it's going to be a bad year. You're going to lose your arms and legs. But here's why, because you were stupid and did something wrong, or because your wife was stupid, I'm teaching her a lesson, which is probably it. And here's when it's going to be over. If I know why I'm going through it and when it's going to be over, I'm fine. But does God ever tell you why and when? No. He doesn't tell you why and when. He just says, trust me. Walk with me. Follow me. And courage is following God and walking with God when it doesn't make any sense. And you don't see anything changing. What keeps most of us from being obedient to God is a lack of trust. We don't trust God because we don't see the results we want to see when we want to see them. Now, the most repeated phrase in the Bible is the phrase, fear not. It's the, the command, fear not, is given 366 times. That's enough for every day of the year and leap years. God's got you covered. Every day, God says, hey, don't be afraid. Just trust me. But I don't see anything happening. Don't be afraid. Just trust me. But it doesn't make any sense. Don't be afraid. Just trust me. See, in Joshua, the people wanted to fight. But God wanted to make them wait. The hardest part of faith is waiting on God to move when you can't see him doing anything. But that's what's required. It's trusting God even when you don't see him do anything. And that takes courage. And that's what God requires of us to walk with him. Now, Joshua, he leads Israel throughout the book of Joshua. He leads Israel through hundreds of battles as they conquer the land that God has given to them. But look how the book ends. I want you to turn real quick to Joshua chapter 24. Last chapter. They fought the battles. They've conquered the land. They've beaten the enemy. They've divided the land. And Joshua is about to die. He knows his leadership's over. So look what he says in verse number one. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and, and called all for the elders of Israel and for their, head, their heads and for their judges and for their officers and they're presenting themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people. So Joshua he is, he's doing like Moses. He's given his farewell address. The battles are over. The land is conquered. The, the land's divided. Everyone's where they're supposed to be. My time is coming to an end. And now I'm going to give you some last encouraging words how to keep you going and staying faithful to God. And he reminds them of everything that God has done for them. Then look at verse number, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 24. Look at verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood. I don't know why they're still there, but put them away and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers which served uh, the only side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, or uh, the, the land that you dwell. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid we should forsake God, to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he is that brought us up out of the of our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and when did these great signs in our sight and persevered, persevered us, uh, preserved us all the way whereon we went among all the people throughout the land and the Lord drove us, drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord for he is God. So Joshua says, look, just be faithful to God and do this. And Israel says, man, we know that God brought us out of Egypt. We know that God brought us through the Red Sea. We know that God provided in the wilderness. We know that God fought these battles in, in, in the promised land. We know that God's the one that did everything. And we are going to serve God faithfully no matter what. Look what Joshua says in verse 19. And Joshua says to the people, you cannot serve the Lord for he is holy he is a holy God and he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. So Israel's like, man, we're going to be faithful to God. And Joshua says, no, you won't. You're going to blow it. And you know what? They do. Book of Judges, they, they blow it all the time. They trust God. they faithful to God. They turn their back on God. They, God sends invaders and God raises up a judge and he conquers the enemy and they turn back to God and will be faithful to God. And then just over... And over and over and over. We'll be faithful. And Joshua, the warrior leader who helped them conquer the land, says, no, you won't. No, you won't. Why? That's how every book in the Old Testament ends. We'll be better. No, you won't. So no matter what God does for Israel, no matter who is in charge... They cannot be led to be courageous and to surrender to God. Why? Because they needed someone better to jo than Joshua to show them the way. They needed someone better than Joshua to fight for them and to do what for them what they could not do. And Jesus, he shows up in a clearer way and does for Israel and does for us and humanity what we can never do. Look, Joshua and Israel, by the end of the book of Joshua, they were a pretty tough warrior nation, but at Jericho, they had no hope of beating Jericho. They had no catapults. They had no nothing. So God did for them what they could not do. He beat the enemy they could have never defeated. That's what Jesus does for us. He came and our enemy was death and hell and the grave and there was nothing we could do to defeat it. God gave us a battle plan. God said, hey, you want to avoid hell and the grave? Great. Live a perfect sinless life your entire life and then you're okay. But we could never do that. That was the whole point of the Ten Commandments. Hey, here's the, you, want, you want to be successful and get to heaven? Do all this, but you can't. So Jesus came. He did for us what we could never do. He lived the perfect sinless life none of us ever could. He died on the cross, not for his sins. No, we think, oh, well, he died because of the Pharisees and he died because of the Romans. No, he died because of me. God demanded my sin have a payment on it. And Jesus said, I will pay his price. 
I will live a perfect life. I will die an excruciating death. I, but not only the death, I will have the wrath of God for my sins and your sins and the world's sins poured out on me and I will suffer and I will die and I will pay the payment. I will go to hell so they don't have to and I'll rise again three days later to redeem them to God the Father. I'll win the fight you could never win. And he did it forever. See, in the book of Joshua, they beat the enemies. But you know what happens in the book of Judges and Ruth and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and you know, all those. You know what happens? They're still fighting those enemies. Well, it's because they didn't obey God and defeat them all. No. It's because they could never defeat them and get rid of them forever. But when Jesus died for us on the cross and shed his blood and rose again, and we accept him as our Savior, that enemy's gone forever. I know for sure that Jesus is my Savior, I'm going to heaven when I die. You know what that means? I will never have to even smell what hell smells like. I'll never have to see it for a second. I'll never get a glimpse of it. I'll never feel it even a little bit. I will never experience any part of hell because he beat that enemy for me. I won't experience death. Now, this body will die. This body will stop, you know, my heart will start, stop beating. My lungs will stop going in. My brain will stop working. Maybe already has. This body will die. But as soon as my brain says power off, I open my eyes in heaven. And you know what happens when a believer closes their eyes in death and opens their eyes in heaven? They didn't lose to cancer or to heart disease or to an accident. Or they didn't lose anything. They won. Because they now have eternity with God the Father where there is no pain. There is no sickness. There is no hurt. There's just the joy of the Lord forever. God defeated death and hell and the punishment of sin. He did the fighting because we couldn't. All we have to do is believe that he did. That goes for salvation, but it also goes for the believers. It goes for the rest of your life as well. God, in every battle you face, is fighting for you. Are you willing to surrender to God and say, God, I don't know how to do this or what to do. I'm just going to let you do what you want to do because you're better at it than I am. I'm going to trust you. And God, even if it, it, it seems for a while like you're not doing anything, I'm going to have the courage to trust you anyway. Not for salvation, but for joy and for peace and his will. So here's the question this morning. Do you believe that God's fighting for you and he's won the battles already? Or are you like Aiken trying to do it on your own?